I'm happy to be with you this morning. I, um, you know, I've been a believer all of my life and have been reading the Bible all of my life. And um, the more I read it, the more interesting it gets to me. And the more I find God has this way of coming at me through the text of Scripture. So um, I'm excited to talk with you about discerning. What I want to talk this morning about is discerning Christ in the Old Testament. So, and it's an important issue for us. You know, we had, those of you that pay any attention uh, to what's happening in Christian pop culture, you might be aware in the last month and a half or so, there was a famous pastor in Georgia, Andy Stanley is his name. Any of you ever read any books or listened to any podcast teaching by Andy Stanley? Great pastor, great ministry. And he was talking about some Old Testament, New Testament issues. And he made the, what I think is a kind of unfortunate comment that in New Testament faith, what we do is we unhitch our faith from the faith of the Old Testament. And he later went back and tried to clarify what he was saying by that. But what he was trying to do is he was trying to say that we don't derive all of our ethical norms from the Old Testament. We have a different way of understanding that now, which is more or less true. But you know, when he said that, we unhitch, the Christian world went berserk. He goes, "Ah, what do you mean by that? Unhitch, are you saying? And you said from all, like the four corners of Christendom, right? People just go bananas about this, which is maybe a word to the wise. Like if you can... Avoid it in life as a vocational path. Don't become a famous pastor. It's very, it could be challenging for your reputation. But it only goes, the level of reaction from the Christian world only goes to show how important we all at a visceral level, even if we've never thought about it before, how important we all think it is. The question really is, is the Old Testament our book? Or is it something else? Have we graduated into something beyond? And if the Old Testament is our book, then how do we think about it? How do we process it? How do we handle it? Because the Old Testament is not straightforward. It's a really confusing book sometimes, and it's muddled. And there's a lot of stuff in it that's just sort of downright bizarre, (laughs) even violent. You go, wait, what do I do with this thing? So it's important for us to think about the Old Testament in a way that allows us to claim it as our book. So I want to propose a way of thinking about that this morning and then take you through some readings of some Old Testament texts that, that show how this book is actually our book. Does that sound good? Okay. Are, you, are we alive or are we good? Yeah. All right. I just needed to know that. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you not by our own virtue or our own merit or our own strength, but we come to you because you've called us. It's grace that went in front of us and woke us up this morning. Grace that made us alive to you this morning. Grace that drew us. Jesus, you are, speaking of the Old Testament, the New Testament would say that you're the great high priest who, because your life is an unending life, your priesthood never expires. It never goes away. And so what you do is you gather us up, the people of God. You gather the children of God up, and you offer us up to the Father. So we're here this morning because you're dragging us up before the light of the Father's face. And we're grateful for that. Holy Spirit, rest on us this morning. Rest on us. Help us as we search the Scriptures as we think and ponder and pray, as we talk with one another, we just pray that this room would be full of light and truth. And everything that's not light and not truth, that it would just be far. The light, John says, shines in the darkness, and the darkness 
It hasn't overcome it. It hasn't even understood it. It can't comprehend the light. So we just pray this whole room this morning would be full of holy light and that we would know something more about you this morning and that our hearts would melt in adoration because of that. Grant that, we pray. We're asking that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter 1, if you have Bibles, if you don't have Bibles, you can just look on on the screen behind me. I want to show you some things that are happening in the Gospels to kind of, in the Gospel, particularly Matthew here, just to point your attention to the way that the New Testament writers and the New Testament community thought about how Jesus related to whatever came before him. And so you have Matthew saying, this is the very first words of the New Testament. Matthew says, this is the genealogy, everybody say genealogy, of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. So he's going back to King David, right? The son of Abraham. Now, then what he does in the next bunch of verses is he works through the genealogy, right? He shows how Jesus is the son of so-and-so, 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 the son of so-and-so. And he keeps hooking it back and knitting the Jesus story deeply into the story that came before him, the Old Testament story. And in fact, this word, genealogy, is the Greek word geneseos. Can I hear you say geneseos? Uh, You might translate that Genesis. And in fact, in the Gospel of Mark, the next Gospel after Matthew, when Mark opens his Gospel, he calls his Gospel the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of whoever, right? Book of the Genesis in Greek is biblos geneseos the book of the Genesis. You know what he's doing? He's going, whatever it was that happened in Genesis, I want to show you how Jesus is not a repeat of what happened in Genesis, but to use an early church word, he's a a recapitulation. Like what I'm going to do is I'm going to retell the whole story of the world, just like it was told in Genesis. I'm going to tell that now through the reality of Jesus. So you see it from the very earliest places in the New Testament, that these writers were determined to tell the Jesus story through the great story of whatever had come before him. Does that make sense? So now when we look down at Matthew and we start working through the early chapters of Matthew, you get this. For instance, in verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary is pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the, to the what? To the law. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had a mind to divorce her quietly. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take her home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You're going to name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to what? Do you see the word? What does it say? All this took place, verse 22, to what? To fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so Joseph wakes up and then he does the very thing that was commanded to him. And when you look through, I'm going to spare, I want to save time for the end, so I'm not going to do all these. But when you look even through the next chapter, uh, Matthew continues to say over and over and over again that whatever was going on with Jesus fulfilled. It fulfilled. So it filled up some element of the Old Testament story that had gone before it. And in fact, some of the places where he says Jesus fulfills the Old Testament story, it's not obvious to us on the face of the reading of it that this is a straightforward, that what he's dealing with is a straightforward prophecy of Jesus, okay? 
Now, sometimes when we think about how Jesus and the Old Testament relate, we think mainly of prophecy, right? We think about these sort of scattered bits or moments in the Old Testament where somebody foretold something that was going to happen, and then Jesus steps on the stage and we go, oh, look, somebody foretold that thing that happened. But the New Testament writers, it's just, it's more nuanced than that. I'll draw your attention to, and uh, it's Greg, right, in the booth back there. Take me to the slide uh, where it shows Matthew 2, 14, and 15. Can you do that? Matthew 2, 14, and 15. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was, what's the word there again? Do you see it? Yeah. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that, when you read it in context, is not exactly a prophecy of Jesus. What it is, is the Lord saying that he had called his, you remember the, the Exodus story? He's saying, I called my son Israel out of exit, out of, out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But Matthew somehow looks back at the Old Testament and he sees that line and he goes, oh, this is a way for us to explain what was going on with Jesus. It's not exactly a prophecy. Are you tracking with me? It's like more complex than that, okay? It's more nuanced than that. I want to take you to Luke chapter 23. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. Luke chapter 23. Jesus, uh, 24 rather, Luke chapter 24, Jesus has risen from the dead, and you might know the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, so he's risen from the dead, but his disciples haven't discovered him yet, they don't know that he's alive, or he hasn't revealed himself yet, and so he walks with these couple disciples, they're making this journey to Emmaus, right, and uh, so he walks up alongside them, and they start talking about the Jesus story. He goes, what are you guys talking about as you walk along? They go, haven't you heard the news? There was this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, that came along. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And da, da, da. And all this stuff happened, and we buried him, and now it's three days later, and there's, he's not there anymore. We don't really know what's going on, right? He's like, he says to them, he's like, how foolish you are, you stupid idiots. Anyway, this is what he says. Verse 25 of chapter 24. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things then enter his glory? Now, they still don't realize that it's him, that he's kind of the authoritative interpreter, right, to them. And then verse 27, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. Is that up there? It's not up there. In all the scriptures, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And he goes on to show his face to these guys. And then he appears to them one more time in verse 44. He said to them, so now they're all gathered kind of in the upper room. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be, do we have that one? Everything must be, what's the word? It's fulfilled. That's written about me where? In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So, but look at that, verse 46. And he told them, this is what is written. And then he kind of talks about his vocation, what he had done. There is, for Jesus, the relationship between who he was and what he did was bigger than mere prophecy, What he does with these early followers of him 
is he stands up in front of them and he says, you know, everything that came before me, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the whole thing, like he takes that whole thing, the whole Old Testament text, and he wraps it around himself. And he goes, see, it was all pointing to me. I and the, I'm the sub, sum and the substance, the hidden depth of the Old Testament text. At one point in the book of John, Jesus says, you diligently study the scriptures. He's talking to the Pharisees. He says, because you think that by reading the scriptures, and he's talking about the Old Testament, he says, you think that by them, you have eternal life. He says, these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me to have life. He's not just talking about prophecy. He's talking about the whole thing, how it was tilted towards this greater reality yet to come. Are we on the same page this morning? The way that the New Testament thought about the Old Testament was more complex and nuanced and deeper than we tend to think about it. It's bigger than mere prophecy, I would say. Next slide. Now I want to show you something. Um, at the, okay, yeah, so that, sorry, Greg, I told you. It would be my fault if we got the slides wrong, so you're good. Everybody, everybody give Greg a hand. He's doing a great job this morning. All right. So I want to show you something. There is, at the, at the back of the Greek Bible, there's this thing called the Loki Citati Vel Elegati. Right? Threw a little Latin at you. You're like, it's too early for that. Just stop with all that. It's a list of citations and allusions, okay, in the New Testament to the Old Testament. And I wanted to show you this. Put the uh, first picture up, Greg. So on a, it's hard to see, and I don't need you to see the details. But on the left-hand side of each column over here is, so like this is Genesis here, and it has the passage from Genesis, and then listed next to it is the place in the New Testament where that allusion or that citation is found. And so column one, two, three, four. Go to the next slide. And 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 the next slide, and we might have one more. Next slide. Oh, no, one more. I think that's it. Okay. Page after page after page after page. You almost get the impression when you look through this, and if you read the New Testament with a critical eye, you'll get this impression that the New Testament in its essence is more or less a running Christological, Christological just means Christ logic, right? Everything that's happened in Jesus. It's a running Christological commentary on the Old Testament. They're reading the Old Testament and they're retelling the Old Testament story through the thing that happened in Christ. So here's Paul, the Apostle Paul. Here's his great summary statement of this reality. Paul says it like this, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. And no matter how many promises God has made, he's really talking about the whole Old Testament here, they are all what? In who? And so through him, the amen is spoken to us by the glory, to the glory of God. So we might say it like this. This, is, this would be my summary statement of it to sum this up. Next slide, Greg. That Jesus is the Father's deep and final yes hidden underneath 
every provisional yes of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Father, as you can write that down, deep and final yes hidden underneath every provisional yes of the Old Testament. So when you're reading the Old Testament, we read as New Testament believers, followers of Jesus, we read the Old Testament in a different way. We read it discerning the Christ reality in it because we believe that Jesus is not just, and this is an important point for you to grasp. Remember how Jesus said, I am the way and the what? The truth. So Jesus is not one truth among many truths in our world. He does not answer to some higher truth than himself other than the Father, who is the truth from whence he comes, and we believe in Christian theology that he is co-equal to the Father, right? So he is, he is the Father's hypostasis. He's what that happens when the Father makes manifest his own being. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There is no truth greater than Jesus. So when we're reading the Old Testament, we read it with deeper vision. We read it with deeper eyes. What we're discerning is the deep and final truth of all things, which is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. That's the truth that we're living in. When we read the Old Testament, we're reading it through the reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're not doing that arbitrarily. We're doing it because we believe that in some way, shape, or form, the Old Testament was always gesturing to that reality. It was always somehow trying to bear witness to that, which is why Paul says in another place in the New Testament, Colossians, he says that the mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, it's like it was tucked away. Remember how Jesus told that parable about the treasure hidden in the field? He says when a person found it, they sold everything to find it. Well, the early church writers would have said that Jesus was the treasure hidden in the field of the Old Testament. And Paul says that the mystery was kept hidden for ages and generations, he says, but now it's disclosed to God's holy people, his saints. And that mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For we who stand on this side of the resurrection of Jesus, we have no other way to read the Old Testament We read it through the reality of what happened in Jesus. Are we on the same page this morning? Now, the question then becomes, well, what does that look like practically? Okay, like how how do we do that practically speaking? One way, this is a more modern way of doing it, last couple hundred years or so, is an approach called the redemptive historical approach. It's one way to think about it, where when we read the Old Testament, we're reading it in that sort of chronological sequence knowing that one day Christ will come. And so when we interpret, or especially when we preach the Old Testament, we always preach it through that historical sequence, right? So for reading the stories, for instance, about the the coming together of the monarchy in Israel, we read about the coming, we preach, and we read and we interpret about the, the, the coming of the monarchy, but then we see on the other side of that uh, the failure of the monarchy and we know, and then, of course, the dissolution, of the, uh, the dissolution of the people of God into exile. And then we know that they come back together again, and Jesus recapitulates them and reconstitutes them, and he's our great and final king, right? We kind of do it in that sort of redemptive, historical-type way. So we start with that historical reality, and then we move on to the greater thing. And I think that's a really valid way to handle the Old Testament text, that you're always kind of moving from this thing 
to the greater reality, chronologically speaking. But I want to just show you something in the New Testament that I think is fascinating, and it points to a deeper and a more nuanced way of handling the Old Testament text. And we don't have the text for this up on the screen because I threw it at Greg at the last minute, and it was just too much for all of us. So I'm just going to read it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you have Bibles, you can go there. But if you don't, that's fine. Just listen. This is fascinating to watch what Paul does with an Old Testament story. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea. So he's talking about the Exodus event, right? They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. So it seems like he's talking about the manna in the wilderness. You remember that story about the miraculous provision of food, manna? So they all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and does anybody have your Bible open? What are the next words? Just shout it out. What? And that rock was Christ. Paul, can we take a time out here? How did you get there? <laughs> I mean, he, and he doesn't, he doesn't go, I mean, there's not, like you don't see happening in the text, Paul going, hey guys, I've just come to a great discovery. I want to argue for this great point where I think that the rock in the Old Testament was Christ. He just says it. And he assumes that they're all going to get it. That they're all going to go, yeah, yeah, no, you're right. That's right. And the rock, the rock that accompanied the people of God thousands of years ago in the desert was somehow mysteriously this Jew that appeared in the first century. What? But they did that in the New Testament. They saw Christ present everywhere because they believed that he was the deep reality of all things. And so it was unproblematic for them. In fact, later in this same text, he says that the people of God, those people that came out of Egypt, that they tested Christ. Well, when and where and how? If you read just the story out of Exodus, you'd never see Jesus there. And it's certainly not a prophecy of Jesus. But because of what had happened in Jesus, and because of who they had come to understand God to be in Jesus, it was unproblematic for Paul to look back on that story and go, yeah, the full reality of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was there with the people of God as they made their way out of Egypt. Are we on the same page here this morning? See, the thing that you have to remember that sometimes we forget because we're now 20 centuries or so removed from the Christ event, is that the early church did not have a New Testament. Do you know that? Yeah, they didn't have it. It took a long time for it to come together. By about the mid-first century, so 20 or so, but the earliest documentation that we have of any kind of letter or New Testament would become known as the New Testament writings, that happens about 20, maybe 30 years after Jesus by about the end, mid to the end part of the first century, that the Gospels start to come together, but they're not really recognized as canon, as authoritative scripture. They're letters and stories circulating about Jesus. The New Testament was officially formalized as part of the canon around the same time as the Council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from, fourth century. So what were they doing in the early church? I'll tell you what they were doing. They were reading Psalm 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd. They get together in their little house church communities. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And then they would say, we worship you, Jesus. We thank you that you are our good shepherd, that because of you, we lack nothing. You've provided all things for us. We thank you that you are the one who leads us beside green pastures and quiet waters, and you, by virtue of your resurrection from the dead, you restore our soul, and you guide us in paths of righteousness because your spirit is with us, Lord Jesus. So you're guiding us by your spirit along the right paths for the sake of your name, that God has, which your Father has set above every name. And we know that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you're with us, and you are the God who was hung on the cross. And that means that you have swallowed up the deepest darknesses of our lives. So there is no darkness that we can walk through that you have not experienced and that you have not taken into yourself in some way. And we believe that you're preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies because of what you have done, Lord Jesus. And we believe that you're anointing our head with oil, the person of the Holy Spirit, and our cup overflows, and goodness and mercy will follow us all the days. They interpreted it through Jesus. They read the Old Testament text And then they sang to Jesus and communed with Jesus and they spoke Jesus to one another. And Jesus became the interpretive reality, the lens by which they understood what was happening in the Old Testament. And really, when you look at the literature of the first couple centuries of the church, it was unproblematic for them. They didn't even go, boy, we're doing an interesting thing. We're interpreting the Old Testament Christologically. No, what they did is they just read it. It was their Bible. And they saw. Because they believed that in him, Jesus, they lived and moved and have their being. So they saw Jesus everywhere, Christ everywhere. As one great poet said, Christ plays in 10,000 places. They saw him everywhere, not least in the Old Testament text. One writer has characterized this approach. You can put the next slide up on the screen. Uh, Give it to me, Greg, whenever you got it. It's coming. Yeah, you can go beyond that. I told you it was going to be my fault. One writer has characterized this as the sacramental approach to reading Scripture. The sacramental approach to reading Scripture. And when you look at the literature of the first few centuries of the church, most of the way when they talk about the Old Testament text, most of the way that they talk about approaching the Old Testament text is sacramental. Sometimes it's explicitly so. Actually, the great St. Augustine, he actually said that Scripture was a sacramenta that it was a sacrament. And even where they don't explicitly say the word sacramenta, part of like, the way that they talk about it is that Scripture is like this physical thing, this tactile thing that presents a form to us in some way that does two things at the same time. It communicates to us the greater reality that it's gesturing towards, and, it's all, and it also, by virtue of our connection to it, our interaction with it, takes us up into that greater reality. So when we gather on Sundays around the bread and the cup, we say, this is his body, right? Broken 
for us, the great sacrament of the body of Christ. And we say this is the blood of the new covenant, which is given for us. And when we take communion, here is the analog. I want you to put this in your mind and lodge it there when you think about the Old Testament. That this bread and this cup in the moment of communion never stop being bread and cup. Okay? They are and remain at the surface level just a piece of bread and just a cup. But... By virtue of what Jesus has done and who he is and his desire to communicate himself to us, bread and cup remain bread and cup, but they also become more than bread and cup. And when we come with humble hearts to God, by faith what happens is that this bread somehow is a communication of the body of Christ to us. And the cup is a communication of the blood of Christ poured out for us. And we believe that there's a reason that we call it the C word, communion. What do we think is happening here? There is a communion that's taking place. We're being drawn up into the reality of Jesus the Lord by virtue of the bread and by virtue of the cup. And the New Testament writers and the early church writers all thought about the Old Testament text in that exact same way. That the, that the Old Testament text was a form that was given to us. One of the great writers, Origen, of the first couple centuries said that it was a manifesta. It was a manifest thing, okay, the Old Testament text, that drew us up into the occulta, the hidden thing behind it. And the occulta is Jesus, the manifest and the hidden And so when we come to the Old Testament text, that's the way that we think about it as people who live on this side of the resurrection. And really, this was, when you look at it, this was the preferred method of handling the Old Testament text through the first 15, 16 centuries of the church. I want to show you an interesting picture that I ran across recently. This is from the cover to a book of the Psalms that comes, uh, I think, out of Denmark in about the 12th century. And this picture is a picture of Moses at the burning bush. And who do you see in the burning bush? Jesus. (laughs) It's like a perfect way of expressing how the ancients thought about the Old Testament text. That they just saw. They were always reading the Old Testament text looking for the face of Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They go, oh, in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, and there was light. When he spoke, it was Jesus, because we know that Jesus is the word of God, right? When Abraham, in Genesis 18, has the three men that come to him to tell him about the promises of God, they said, that has to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we know that that's how God communicates himself to us. When we're reading Psalm 22, And there's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that's Jesus. Jesus takes the desolation of the people of God up into himself, and he becomes the expression of abandonment that also is vindicated in the resurrection. They looked for the face of Jesus everywhere. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that's not a fanciful way of reading the Old Testament. It's not something in addition to proper and responsible exegesis of the Old Testament text. 
it actually is proper and responsible exegesis. If God is the God who fully and finally makes himself known in the person of Jesus, then the proper subject of any Old Testament text is always whoever is named by the name Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you read, you read discerningly. Just like when we take the bread and the cup, we take the bread and the cup discerningly. We're discerning the body and the blood of Jesus. So when we read the Old Testament text, we read it looking for Jesus, looking for the Christ pattern, looking for the patterns of our salvation, and then we situate ourselves right in that text, and that text becomes our text that communicates God's life and his truth and his goodness to us. Are you with me this morning? How much time do we have left? Okay, so what I want to do here, now I'm going to shift gears here for a second. What I want to do now is I want to throw uh, some table discussion time at you. Because one of the things that I think reading this way helps us with is it helps us with thorny texts in the Old Testament. Test, uh, texts that when you read them on the face of it, you go, ah. <laughs> That's a challenging one, right? And one of the most challenging ones in the Judeo-Christian tradition has always been Genesis chapter 22. You know what's in that story? Who knows it? It's the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And what's he asked to do in the story? He's asked to sacrifice him, right? You go, I don't think we do that anymore. Would God ask a person to do that? I'm not sure if we should read this. Is it, is it okay to read this story, right? It is. It's part of our text. So what I want you to do is, I assume that we have at least one Bible at every table. So what I want you to do is I want somebody to use that text, to just have it there as a frame of reference. And then at your tables, I want you to talk about, just think through this method a little bit. If the Old Testament is a sacrament of the great reality of Christ, then how would that influence the way that you read Genesis chapter 22? The story of Abraham preparing to offer his son Isaac up as a sacrifice. And there aren't really wrong answers here. So I want you to read discerningly and discuss discerningly. How might this text be read in a way that illuminates the Christ reality and is illuminated by the Christ reality? Does that make sense? Do that for a few minutes and then I'll round us up. Ready, set, go. Okay, well, I hope you guys had some good discussion around your tables. It sounds like we're uh, enjoying it. I, I, I want to just try to put kind of a, a period on this by talking uh, about how I might handle Genesis 22. And the thing that you need to be aware of is that, you know, when we're doing this, what we're thrown into is an ongoing conversation that the church is always having in some way, shape, or form about, so what's actually there? in these Old Testament texts, and then how do we understand that? So um, I'm not going to say that there are no wrong ways to interpret, but there's this whole range of interpretive possibilities for making sense of what's going on here, because any given moment in the Old Testament text is always part, remember, it's just a moment in the greater reality. So to the extent that you can connect the dots to lots of other things, and those things feed back into the text, that'll influence your interpretation. So a couple things that I wanted to just point out. One is, you know, on the face of it, this is such a violent and kind of gruesome text of Scripture. And it really challenges our understanding of God, doesn't it? It's sort of offensive almost. We go, wait, is the God that we worship, the God that we call a good, good father, is he really the God who would ask Abraham who he loves? Abraham is his son. 
Would he ask Abraham to actually go up to this mountain and sacrifice his only son, whom he loves, whom he identifies as such? In the text, would he actually ask? Did he actually ask Abraham to do that? Or is that just Abraham's misunderstanding of of what he heard? And we don't get to peer behind the curtain necessarily on that one. But here's what we do know, is that during this time period when this story was written, this would not have been an unusual thing for a deity to ask of one of his followers, sacrifice to me one of your children. That's what the ancient Near Eastern deities were always doing. Child sacrifice was a huge thing during this time. You sacrifice your oldest or one of your children in the fire as a way of appeasing the deity and meriting his favor. It's you're being willing to say, I will hold nothing back from you. I give my whole life over to you. And so it's interesting to me that in this text, if God, if the God that's spoken of in this text is the good father of Jesus Christ, then I think he proves himself to be so in this text. Because what he does is he takes Abraham's understanding of how deities should behave and normally behave. That's why Abraham doesn't question him, because this is not out of the realm of possibility for Abraham. Abraham goes, of course a God could do this. Gods do it all the time. Why wouldn't my God do this? And so God uses Abraham's understanding of how deities normally behave to subvert that understanding and to lead him into a better understanding. Isaac was never really in serious danger, was he? No. God was always going to take care of him in one way, shape, or form, okay? And he got Abraham's full obedience out of it, but he also subverted Abraham's idea of what a deity might ask. So he's revealing himself as the good father of Jesus Christ in a really important way to Abraham in this. And on the mountain of the Lord, right, it will be provided, is what Abraham says when the ram is presented to him in the thicket. Well, we who live on the other side of the resurrection, we look back on this and we go, of course, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided, Because we were the son of God, right? Or the sons and daughters of God whose lives were forfeit. And God interposed the precious blood of the lamb, right? God offered up his own son for us sons and daughters of God whose lives were forfeit in a way that redeemed us and bought us back. So we have the luxury of looking back on the other side of resurrection and saying, yeah, because Jesus, his life was given up on Golgotha. We know that on the mountain of the Lord, it's always provided for us that our lives are spared and we get to live in unending communion with our Father because of what God has accomplished for us in Jesus. Does that make sense? So you're always kind of playing with the Old Testament text in that way. Now, we have a few minutes left, and Josh and I thought it'd be fun to do like a a miniature panel-type discussion uh, where we continue to explore the topic a little bit more. So Josh has a couple questions, I think. Pardon me while I grab my stool because I ain't standing. Hey, um, so a couple questions, yeah, I was kind of noodling on uh, as you were talking that I think probably came up uh, at the tables is, is uh, I don't know if you guys had this question, but can you, is it possible to over-insert Jesus into the Old Testament? Because um, some people have um, kind of thrown proverbial stones at the early church fathers in the early church for doing this, like the tent pegs yep. of the tent of meeting. That means that Jesus was this, this, and this. And getting down to really the microcosmic details, is it possible to do that? And if so, how do we avoid that? Yeah, it sort of reminds me a little bit of that old st- story about, uh, uh, it was like a children's ministry type situation. And uh, the teacher was describing a squirrel and asked the class, have you heard the story? And so the teacher asked the class, 
well, you know, what's the answer to the question of the thing that they were describing? And the little kid raises his hands and goes, and goes well, it sounds like a, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sounds like a lot like a squirrel kind of thing. Sometimes in our zeal to see Jesus everywhere, we leave behind the obvious things. And so just to answer your question, you know, the, especially in the first few centuries of the church, the church fathers, the thing that they never do is they never leave behind the, the, the various levels of meaning and levels of reading. So they always read the text just as the text and try to discern just what's going on there in there on a literary level and a historical level. And that for them is the control, okay, of making sense of what the deeper levels of meaning, meaning could be. So they always interpret that first band is the historical and the literary. They want to make sure that they have that right. When they get the historical and the literary right, then they drop down usually into the moral, okay? What does this teach us about being God's people? What does it teach us about virtue? How do we become better people through it? In the story of David and Goliath, for instance, they interpret it literary, historical, but then they go to the moral. What does this show us about virtue? What does this show us about courage? What does this teach us about how we're to face our enemies and all the nuance of that? And they do work there, but then they'll always go from there to the Christological, the depth. What does this show us about who Jesus is? And they would go, but Jesus really is the son who was selected from the father's herds, who nobody really paid attention to, but he came and he stood in the gap for the people of God and he faced down the great enemy of God and killed him. So do you see what they're doing? Those are the controls. So historical, literary, moral, and then that kind of spiritual meaning, the Christological meaning. Now in that, down there at that depth, they do frequently overinterpret. And one of the things that you see with the church fathers is that they're often in disputes with one another about that. So they'll go, no, you can't put Jesus there because actually Jesus, it's more appropriate to see Jesus in this part of the story like this than it is to see him over there. But the point is that um, the work has to be done of that. So you read it at those levels, then you get down there and you go, so what really is going on there? How do we understand that? Jesus, how and in what way is this a picture of you? How do we discern you in it? So that doesn't answer all the questions ahead of time. But the conversation is the right conversation to have, that that's how we do it, if that makes sense. Which, practically speaking, then, it is of immense importance to understand the overarching narrative of the Old Testament before we do the heavy lifting of interpreting, right, right. for ourselves. Uh, recognizing that it is, in fact, a tale of history, God revealing himself in concrete history, and then moving from there, you mm-hmm. know, uh, unpacking the moral, unpacking how Jesus fits into it. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, another one was, um, I think, a huge attack against the Christian faith, especially especially in post-modernity, is um, picking out the holy war texts, right? God telling the Israelites, uh, go, kill those kill that army, kill those people and over on the land. And then you settle in it, you know? So is Jesus found in those or ought we, uh, if we're breaking down the two approaches to purely interpret that as the historical narrative approach? Uh, and if so, yeah, how do we untangle some of those specific problem texts that I think a lot of people can point out against the Christian faith? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how we untangle them, frankly. And I think that some of those texts, you just kind of have to hold and you have to hold against the Christ reality and you go, God, what is, what's happening here? Um, and those texts, particularly the Holy War texts, but even some of the texts from the Old Testament, text, like the law. You know, the, when this, the, there's, a, there's a text in Leviticus, I think, where uh, a kid is, somebody's out gathering sticks or something on the Sabbath. They're doing something on the Sabbath they shouldn't do. And the law of Moses said that they needed to be stoned for that. So they stoned the person to death. Okay. 
And then we have Jesus, who when people break the law in the New Testament, Jesus speaks this word of mercy over them. So it's an important question. How is Jesus present here? Is this a moment in this people's growing understanding of God that maybe something was going on in in maybe Moses and saying that the Sabbath breaker should be put to death? Maybe he's over speaking for God. Maybe what's going on with Moses when he says that is Moses understands the seriousness of protecting the Sabbath. Maybe what Moses is saying is that, is that our lives really are on the line in keeping Sabbath. And that if as a nation we surrender Sabbath keeping, we're going to lose our life as a nation. Our life together will become Egypt. There will be many more lives that will be lost because we don't obey the Sabbath. So we have to stop this right now. And so that that, that person is killed as a way of asserting the importance of the command. So maybe Moses is over-interpreting something that he thinks God might be saying, but he got some of it right and some of it wrong. We don't know. <laughs> what we do know, and here is the deep control for all of us in the way that we behave and live and move and have our being, is Jesus. We stay with who Jesus is and how God has revealed himself to us in Jesus And then when we come to places in the Old Testament that don't seem to match the character of God as it's revealed in Jesus, I think what we do is we humbly hold that in our hearts before the Lord. And we go, Lord, I don't don't understand how in these Holy War texts this answers to the merciful God you have shown yourself to be in Jesus. But I also am with Jesus, and here's a critical thing. I'm with Jesus in saying that the God of the Old Testament is his Father. So I can't get rid of this either. I'm just going to hold it. And I just want to say something to all of you on this. There is, on this particular point, there is a universal, I think, human tendency to dogmatically and rigidly define everything so as to bracket out all mystery. And there is something really important and beautiful that's lost in that. Mystery is a critical element of our faith. So... You do not have to understand everything that's happening in the Bible to follow Jesus faithfully. Just as you don't have to understand the mystery of your own existence or the cosmos or how it all works to follow Jesus faithfully, there are things that you can hold to mystery. And you just let them be there and you let them speak to you through the Christ reality as you are able to let them speak to you. And God will speak to you through them. And then as he unfolds his will and his character to you through that text, you know what you can do? Check it against what's come before you and how others have handled these things and talked about these things. Because we are part of the one holy universal apostolic church. We are part of the ongoing conversation about how God has revealed himself to be the God who's with us and for us in Jesus. So you hold it. And you do it in the context of the great communion of saints, I think. That's so good. Was this helpful, everybody? Helpful? Let's show some love to Pastor Andrew Arndt. Thank you so much, man, for being here. Uh, let's stand, and I want to pray a prayer of blessing over all of you as we dismiss. Good and gracious Lord and Father.
uh, we thank you for making us yours. We thank you for ransoming us. We thank you for uh, grabbing us out of the muck and the mire, out of the darkness, and adopting us into your wonderful and glorious family. Thank you that we're your kids. And we pray that as we go out of here, we ask that as we handle your word, you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to apply these things that we've learned this morning and help us to responsibly and properly handle these sacred scriptures that we've been given. God, these scriptures are a gift. These scriptures are a sacrament. These scriptures are a grace that we have. Help us to handle them properly. Help us to uh, love them as a gift. And I pray that you would be glorified and honored through the work of our hands in that. Uh, And we pray grace and peace on each and every one of us. Would you send us out of here with life and help our words to be seasoned with salt. Help us to be the salt of the world, the light of the earth. Help us to be that city on a hill uh, that shines the love and the beauty of Jesus Christ to the world around us. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen.